Well, hello, everybody, if I may call you everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, I'd like to welcome you to a celebration of a very good week for cosmology. As uh, you may have heard, physicists who study the history of the universe got a blast from the past a few days ago. A special detector at the South Pole looking at ancient microwaves from outer space got a glimpse of the cosmos as it was almost 14 billion years ago, just after the Big Bang. I would actually say that we're talking about before the Big Bang at this point. (laughs) Wait, wait, before the Big Bang? That's crazy talk, right? Well, not if you understand the theory of cosmic inflation the way my guest today does. He is the theoretical physicist Anthony Aguirre, and uh, we have had him on the show previously talking about this very notion of how our universe had a spectacular growth spurt about, oh, 13.7 or so billion years ago, wherein it suddenly exploded, doubling in size almost 100 times over and expanding from a mere subatomic speck to something much, much larger in just a split second. And yeah, that may seem like a wild-ass idea, but it has become pretty much a cornerstone of modern cosmological theory. It is very hard, in fact, to explain the universe as we know it without that whole inflation bit. And yet, however essential it is to our theories, it has also remained largely hypothetical. Because, you know, it is not so easy finding clear evidence of stuff that happened freaking eons ago. Well, now, as of this week, amazingly, we have some evidence. If not a smoking gun, at least a clean set of fingerprints. And they've not only given us a strong indication that inflation actually happened, but they provide a lot of new information about how it happened. And if you don't think that is a big deal, well, uh, just listen to what some normally sober-sided physicists had to say after the announcement was made. Here's uh, the cosmologist Lawrence Krauss in the pages of the New Yorker magazine. At rare moments in scientific history, a new window on the universe opens up that changes everything. Today was quite possibly such a day. And uh, here's uh, Sean Carroll, another well-known cosmologist, writing in his blog. Other than finding life on other planets or directly detecting dark matter, I can't think of any other plausible near-term astrophysical discovery more important than this one for improving our understanding of the universe. Anthony Aguirre himself is pretty stoked, though uh, he was calm enough when I contacted him a couple of days ago to walk me through the details of the discovery and explain why it has got so many of his fellow scientists beside themselves with excitement. Anthony, thank you for making your now fourth appearance on the show. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And this latest uh, news is right in your wheelhouse. That's right. It's been a good week to be a theoretical cosmologist, and especially one who talks about the uh, theory of inflation. We're going to talk a bit about inflation, as we did some years ago. I think it was 2011 when we first had a conversation about that subject. And I was thinking back to that conversation, remembering uh, a funny story you told me, that you and inflation didn't always get along. It was sort of like one of those romantic comedies where... (laughs) At first sight, you didn't like each other, and then you fell in love? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when I was a graduate student, I I was just learning about cosmology. I was learning about the Big Bang Theory and this kind of speculative idea about this strange process that happened at the very beginning uh, of the Big Bang. 
and it had these strange side effects like other universes and things, and I just thought it sounded crazy and preposterous and, and spent a long time trying to come up with other cosmologies and other ways to think about things. Um, and the more I studied the Big Bang and inflation and everything and how it was put together, like you said, uh, those quirks started to look more and more attractive <laughs> each day as we got to know each other better. Let's talk about then cosmic inflation. Um, its invention, let's say, goes back to 1979. It's the stuff of physics legend. I guess, uh, was he a doctoral student or a postdoc, Alan Guth, at the time? Yeah, Alan Guth was a postdoc. I think he was at a, a one-year visiting post at Stanford. Right, so he, I think he was at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, Slack, and he had this amazing idea. First of all, what problem was he trying to solve? Well, Guth was primarily trying to solve, I believe, uh, the monopole problem was how he got started. And, and what that problem is, is that in the very early Big Bang universe, things were very hot. The energies were enormously high. And if you go really far back, as we're going to, um, you get to what's called the Grand Unified Energy Scale. And at the Grand Unified Energy Scale, many people believe that uh, lots of particles exist that, that we don't see on an everyday level because our energies are simply too low. One of those is called a magnetic monopole. So, you know, we have charged particles like electrons and, and things that have an electric charge, but there are no magnetic charges around in the world. Um, there, there are magnets, but they don't have a charge in the same way that an electron has an electric charge. But these magnetic monopoles would, so they'd be kind of the magnetic equivalent of electrons. They just have one charge. They, they don't have a north and south pole. They have one pole. Right. They, they just have a north pole or a south pole or something. Those theoretically exist in the very early universe. And what cosmologists realized is that if they, were, if they existed back then, then they would, as the universe expanded, start to take up more and more of the sort of cosmic fraction of, of density. So radiation kind of dilutes away compared to matter. These would be material objects. The radiation would kind of go away, and the universe would just be all magnetic monopoles. <laughs> Okay, so, so this is a clear flaw in the whole program, that the universe would be made of these things that apparently don't exist observationally. Um, so he was trying to figure out a way to deal with that problem. And what he realized was that you, you need some way to really dilute these things. And the idea that he came up with was that if the universe had a period of super expansion, exponential expansion, where it doubles in size over and over and over again in a tiny fraction of a second, then what that will do is create so much space that it will sort of reduce the number of monopoles, these, these pesky particles that are around, um, to some tiny numbers, so that in you know, our observable universe maybe there's one of these things instead of, you know, instead of our universe being made up of them. So he discovered that if you could have this super exponential, this exponential expansion, that it would dilute away all these pesky monopoles. And then if you could then, having this nice, clean slate, create a bunch of radiation, then you'd have just the sort of initial conditions that you need for our Big Bang theory. It would be filled with radiation that could then maybe create other particles, but the monopoles would be dealt with. So um, inflation, cosmic inflation was really a solution to a pest control problem. That's right. That's right. And, <laughs> and it ha you know, many pest control measures have side effects, <laughs> but this turned out to have some good side effects. So what he also realized was that if you do this expansion that makes the universe really big, 
it can solve some other weird problems with the very early universe. One of these is that uh, we see a universe that's very uniform all around us. If you go to large enough scales, you know, it looks non-uniform on Earth and in the galaxy, but if you go to really large scales, the universe looks very, very smooth. And it's a little strange for just, you know, out of all possible ways the universe could come into being that it's smooth. It also has, it's very flat. Einstein tells us that space-time itself can be curved, and the universe as a whole could be theoretically extremely curved. And rather, instead, it's like perfectly flat. The space-time itself is not curved. The space is not curved. Now, you mean in the absence of, of mass, right? I mean, when there's a massive object, it does get curved, but when it's empty, it's flat, you're saying. Right. So when there's a massive object, space-time gets curved around it, and that creates gravity. That's, right. that's all of Einstein's theory. But on the very large scale, it isn't. And this is another sort of question that was lying around. Um, and there was a third question, which was the universe is not totally uniform. It has little variations very early on, and those grow due to gravity into big variations that we see now, like the fact that there are galaxies instead of just empty space. Um, if the universe was perfectly uniform, there'd just be a sort of even bath of electrons and protons and atoms and things. But instead, we have all these beautiful galaxies and stars and planets and clusters of galaxies, and those had to come from somewhere. And the theory was that they grew out of some very small seeds that existed in the very early universe. And, and there was, you could just sort of assume that those seeds were there, but there was no explanation for why they were there. So what Goose and, and other people investigating this theory found was that with this one idea that the universe had this exponential expansion, not only did it do the pest control, but it also you know, created a universe that was uniform, that was spatially flat, and that had just the right sort of these little density fluctuations that could grow into the sort of galaxies and so on that we see today. So it's kind of four for the price of one <laughs> uh, in, in theory. And, and when you get one theory that creates lots of different results, all of which are good, you start to get really excited, as Alan Goose did. Well, I love the what I'm going to call audacity of it all. Um, <laughs> you know, I can solve all these theoretical problems I can get rid of the magnetic monopole problem. I can explain why space is generally flat, but I can also explain why it has a few lumps in it that create galaxies and galaxy clusters. And all I have to do is say that long, long ago, when the universe is very small and hot, and I mean the observable universe, the part we live in, it expanded at some fantastically fast rate. It exploded. It was, at one point, a billionth the size of a proton, and it went in a split second to the size of a grapefruit, which is a huge, 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 huge expansion. So all I have to do is create some crazy mechanism where that could happen. Yeah, Voila. that's right. And, and all you have to do is assume that this is happening at an energy scale that is a trillion times higher than any energy scale <laughs> we've ever measured in any experiment on Earth. Well, you know, in part it sounds ingenious. In part it just sounds goofy. Like, right, right. And yet here we are talking about evidence for it. <laughs> evidence, yeah, yeah. So before we get to the evidence, let's just talk a, a tiny bit more about inflation. Yeah. In order for Guth and others to justify this idea, he and they had to come up with something that would drive this insane level of expansion uh, really, really fast. And they hypothesized a field, right? 
That's right. A very special field that no one has actually seen, but it has certain energy characteristics. Why don't you tell us what they are? So the crucial thing in having something that will cause this exponential expansion is to have a substance that doesn't dilute as you make space bigger. So you want something that, you know, it's some stuff, but normal stuff, if you put it in a box and make the box bigger, you'll have the same amount of stuff but more space in the box. So the amount of stuff per unit volume is smaller. It dilutes away. That's what normal stuff does. For this to work, to get this exponential expansion, you need stuff that doesn't go away even as the universe expands. And that sounds crazy um, because normal stuff, you know, how does that work? But it does make sense if you think about this stuff as being associated with empty space because as you make the universe bigger, you make a bunch more empty space. (laughs) So if, if empty space has energy, then as you make the universe bigger, you get more of this energy and it doesn't go away. So people started thinking about so-called vacuum energy, that is energy that's still around if you take away all of the material substances that you know about. So you take away the electrons and the protons and the neutrons and whatever else you've got, and you still have energy left. Now that sounds really weird, but what we know about the, the particles of physics is that the, you know, we don't really have empty space with particles moving around in it. The better way to think about it is that space is pervaded with fields. So the electromagnetic field, there's a field that describes electrons, another field that describes protons, another one for neutrons, etc. And the particles that we talk about, an electron, is really an excitation of that field. So if you take away the electron, there's no excitation, but the field is still there. If you take away all the charges, there is still an electric field. Its value is zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but the field is not gone. It just has a particular value that we call the vacuum value. So if you say a field has a certain amount of energy at a given value, there's no particular reason why the energy at the zero value has to be zero. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> what? <laughs> You mean, by zero value, you don't mean zero. You mean just the base level. It, yeah, it's, it's a particular value that the field relaxes to when nothing is happening. Okay, so, so it let's could have positive energy. Let's call it value energy. A. If zero, you know, instead of calling it zero value, let's call it the, the rest value. Yeah, right. And, and the rest value could still have energy. There, there's no necessary rule in physics that the rest value has to have zero energy. Okay. So this is the postulate that there are, is a field or that there are multiple fields that have in their, at their rest value, at their vacuum value, non-zero energy. And if you get that, and if the universe becomes dominated by that energy, that vacuum energy, then you'll get exponential expansion. Okay, so you just, um, you know, first you come up with this ambitious idea that the universe uh, expanded at some mind-boggling rate 13.7 billion years ago, and then you invent a magical field that has a certain amount of energy, and as that energy drives expansion, the energy doesn't dilute. The energy keeps driving expansion and keeps driving expansion, and the more space you have, the more energy, etc. The ultimate free lunch is what Alan Guth called it. That's right. Okay, so it's sounding even more like a fairy tale. Yeah. Um, now, the thing that makes you feel a little bit better about this lately is that Back in, say, the 1980s or early 90s, 
you've assumed two things here for which there was no evidence whatsoever. One is that there's a, a fundamental scalar field like this, a field that isn't like other fields that we know about, but is just sort of a number at each point in space-time. That's a scalar field. Right. And this inflationary field has always been assumed, although you don't have to, but it generally is assumed to be a scalar field. So we're assuming that there's a scalar field, which doesn't, didn't exist otherwise. And then we're also assuming that, there, that it was possible to drive exponential expansion with this scalar field. The equations told you you could, but we didn't see any anti-gravity like this, stuff getting pushed apart anywhere in the actual universe. Now, what makes you feel better about that is that in the intervening years, we've discovered both of those things. We've discovered the Higgs particle, which is an excitation of the Higgs field, which is a scalar field. Right. So it's not probably the field that makes inflation happen, but it's got the same sort of properties. It's a number at each space-time point, um, and it's a fundamental scalar field. So that, those exist. Now, we've also discovered that there seems to be some anti-gravity force pushing the universe apart in exponential expansion right now. <laughs> so this is the, the so-called dark energy. Right. But in, so its energy scale is tiny compared to what we're talking about in inflation. But the, what it's doing is exactly the same. It's, a, it's an energy associated with empty space that's causing the universe to exponentially expand. Yeah, and it may be related to, even if it is much weaker than, that field that hypothetically drove early cosmic inflation. That's right. It's exactly the same physics. It could be uh, in the same field, even, that's doing it. but Just a feebler version. Yes. So cosmic inflation, which, again, Alan Guth and others, uh, including Andre Lindy of uh, Stanford, he's another big player, right? That's right. Uh, sort of worked out a model where the universe could have been extremely tiny, 13.7, roughly, billion years ago, and then got relatively large. A grapefruit doesn't sound very large, but it's really, really large compared to a billionth of a proton, right? That's right. In, and I'm not even going to say what tiny, tiny fraction of a second. It's just too small for me to bother describing. Yeah, a trillion, trillion, trillion. <laughs> yeah, second. one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then at the end of that, you have your, your grapefruit-sized um, universe, which then continues to expand, obviously, uh, to make the universe, the observable universe that we have today, 40 billion light years across, but much slower, much slower. It takes billions of years to get up to, to the current size. That's right. Um, so guys like you have built, on top of this purely hypothetical thing, inflation, all kinds of elaborate additional ideas and more and more theory all on the foundation that hadn't really been, you know, completely confirmed, right? Yes and no, I would say. A lot of what's happened over the intervening 30 years or so are, A, working out further theoretical implications of this inflation idea, including things like the multiverse and, and lots of speculative-sounding things, um, and, B, trying to work out observational predictions that this inflation theory has beyond the ones that it was designed to solve. Because that's really the acid test. If you have phenomenon A and B and C, and you come up with a theory to explain them, that's great. You know, that, that's all well and good. But it's much, much, much better if your theory can predict phenomena D, E, F, and G, and then go look for them and see that those predictions come true. Mm -hmm. So part of what has been happening is confirmation of some of the things that inflation predicted already, like that the universe is pretty much flat, uncurved, um, and that it's pretty much uniform. So those are things that 
people believed, invented prediction, invented inflation to explain, and then we've gone back and tested to what degree they're uniform and flat and have these fluctuations and so on. But then there were other predictions that inflation made, like that the fluctuations would have a particular form, that they, would have, they could be characterized statistically in a very specific way. If you looked at how strong the fluctuations were on one scale on the sky, say a degree across on the sky, a couple of full moons across, versus the whole sky or versus a tiny fraction of a degree on the sky, inflation had a very specific prediction for how the strength of those fluctuations should look um, and that was a prediction that came out of inflation. So a lot of the history has been working out both implications sort of for the universe at large and also making more predictions so that we can test this inflation theory itself. Um, yeah, let's explain what you mean by fluctuations. Right. So one of the, the things that inflation does for us is that it leaves the universe as nearly but not perfectly uniform at the end of inflation. And the reason it does that essentially is that during inflation, there is not just gravity acting and the anti-gravity force due to the vacuum energy. There's also the other big part of physics, which is quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics tells you that you might try to make a uniform universe, a, a universe that's perfectly uniform, but quantum mechanics puts a fundamental limit on how you, certain measurements you can make and how precisely you can know things. Right. This is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's right. And so it can tell you, for example, that you can't know exactly where a proton is and how fast it's moving at the same time. Right. Now, if you look at the early universe, you had this field, this infliton field, and you could say, okay, suppose the universe was perfectly uniform. That would tell me that this infliton field I know exactly what the field value was and the, how, how fast the field value was changing perfectly. If the universe is perfectly uniform, I know exactly what the field value was and how fast it was changing. But quantum mechanics tells me I can't do that. So there had to be fluctuations. There had to be sort of uh, quantum uncertainty in the field and how it's changing. Otherwise, I would violate quantum mechanics. Right, so let me let me just jump in and say that we had avoided saying the name of this magical field until now, but you said it, inflaton. Uh -huh. uh, that's the, the field that we think drives inflation. Um, Heisenberg, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, people often say it tells you that you can't know these two things simultaneously, and those two things might be position and momentum of a particle, or they might be the state of... Um, the, the electric component of the electromagnetic field and the magnetic component at the same time. A lot of different things have this weird trade-off. You can't know them both. You might know one, but you, the more you know about it, uh, the less you know about the other. But it's more than about knowledge. It's about what can coexist at the same time, right? It says you can't have a case where both those things are precisely fixed at the same time. If one is fixed, the other's going to be indeterminate. That's right. And it, so it's, it's not just it's not so much that by looking at it, you're changing it, and so you can't right. know both things. And, and normally this, this phenomena seems kind of safe and small, and you know, you'd only notice it if you were doing a, you know, some finicky experiment in a lab. But, but what's very interesting about this inflation theory is that it suddenly becomes an, a phenomena that takes over the whole universe. <laughs> <laughs> that when you say there's a galaxy here rather than no galaxy, 
you're talking about those uncertainties in the field at the very, very, very early time in the universe. So what the Heisenberg uncertainty principle tells you is that at the quantum level, something's going to be fluctuating at all times. Uh, there is no such thing as just fixed and static material down there. So even in a vacuum where there's supposedly nothing, there's all kinds of activity. Things are popping in and out of existence. Virtual particles are called. Energy is appearing in one area and not another. Even if it all averages out to zero, you know, in a vacuum, it's still full of events. And are you saying, Anthony, if I've got that right so far, that inflation, which blows up this balloon really fast, may smooth things out a lot, just as a balloon seems to get smoother as you blow it up, but it still is going to magnify some little wrinkles, blemishes, bumps on the balloon surface. Those little quantum bumps are going to get bigger, and they're going to create lumps that become points of condensation for stars and galaxies and so on. That's right. And then these lumps are unavoidable, given that quantum mechanics exists and applies to this inflaton field. Okay. So we're, we're at a point now in our conversation where we talked about how inflation predicts certain things. Uh, if you follow the, the model to its logical you know, conclusion, you should see a universe where space is more or less flat, but there are also lumps and you know, objects in some places and not in other places, just as we see. All good, right? But it also predicted that you would see some sort of fingerprints of all this uh, in detectable remnants from the early universe that we, that we can look at. That is the cosmic background radiation. That's right. So a way to look for these fluctuations is just in the distribution of galaxies. But that turns out to be very hard because galaxies are complicated and messy and so on. So what would be wonderful, thought cosmologists, is if there was something much more clean, something where we could really get a snapshot of what the universe looked like really, really early in its history. And there was, it turned out, such a thing, which is in early in its history, the universe was sort of dominated by radiation. And the radiation was coupled very tightly to what matter there was. And the, the whole thing was just sort of this single fluid. And the radiation couldn't get very far because, the, you know, a, a, a photon, a particle of light, would travel little ways and then get scattered off of an electron. This is because uh, you had a lot of free-floating electrons. They hadn't yet condensed into nice consolidated atoms, and it was kind of a fog of particles. That's right. You had this hot, foggy soup, um, pea soup, I guess, fog, yeah. <laughs> describe it that way. Um, but at some point, the universe expanded and cooled enough that those electrons could combine with protons and other nuclei around to make atoms. And now suddenly the universe became quite neutral, and the photons that were drifting, that were flying around, um, could propagate as far as they liked. They wouldn't encounter any electrons to, to bounce off of. So there was kind of one last scatter that they took off of an electron, and then the photons just propagated directly across the universe, and we can see those photons now. Let there be light, really. <laughs> there, there, there is that light from the very, very early moments of the universe. And it doesn't come to us as light, because a photon being not only a particle but also a wave can get stretched out. As the space expands, the, the wave gets stretched out, its wavelength gets longer, and we see those photons not in their original kind of light form, we see them stretched out into the so-called microwave band. So the same sorts of electromagnetic waves that are in your microwave oven, that cook your food, 
Um, those sorts of waves with a wavelength of around a millimeter um, is how we see this background light coming to us. We call it the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, what was light in the visible range has been stretched out to these lower energy, longer wavelength waves, which are microwaves. And that stuff is all around us. I think it was first detected uh, as a faint hiss at a radio telescope, what, in 19, early 1960s? That's right, yeah. And that was, by the way, a huge event because that was confirmation to some extent of predictions of the Big Bang itself. Won a couple Nobel Prizes for some guys who discovered that hiss. Helped really nail the Big Bang theory in some ways. And then we've been examining that cosmic microwave background radiation ever since with, for instance, a series of satellites that have been mapping this stuff. That's right. There, there have been three really big satellites. The first one, called the COBE satellite, um, that saw that this background was there and measured that it was beautifully uh, so-called thermal, which was a prediction of the, this Big Bang theory, and also measured that the temperature of this background radiation was almost the same in every direction, the same up to a part in 100,000 or so, but it had little variations in temperature from one direction in the sky to the other. And this was, in fact, exactly as predicted, because if the universe had slight non-uniformities in how the stuff in it was distributed, then those non-uniformities in the stuff actually translate into non-uniformities in the temperature of the light and the microwave background that's coming to us. So this map of sort of the temperature across the sky and these little variations in the temperature is actually a map of the density fluctuations across the universe when this microwave background was kind of released, the so-called uh, last scattering surface from which it came to us. So in looking at, in looking at this microwave background, the, the COBE satellite first saw these kind of blotches on the sky representing this sort of early picture of what the universe looked like um, a couple of hundred thousand years after the inflationary epoch. So is it right to say that the cosmic background radiation is really the oldest signal we can receive, but even though it originated 300,000 or so years after inflation, it may carry the imprints of what happened earlier. It's like a photo that's got some evidence concealed in it, right? That's exactly right. Now, again, we have, as you say, three satellites have been mapping this stuff. People have been um, poking at it and uh, examining it. Uh, in detail for quite a long time. Did the variations you just described in heat, did they point to confirmation of inflation? Were they predictions of inflation? They did. They, they, were, they were sort of beautifully consistent with the picture of inflation plus the, the Big Bang cosmology after inflation um, that, that people had been thinking about. So the, the predictions that inflation had made thus far were certainly confirmed exquisitely, especially by the second satellite called WMAP that flew around 2003, and then most recently, about a year ago, by the Planck satellite. So, so these temperature variations have been mapped out in, in just beautiful detail, and there's a beautiful agreement between the predictions of inflation um, and the, the standard Big Bang model and these results. So we already had evidence of inflation in a lot of different ways, including the one you just described. That's right. It was evidence for inflation, and it, and it ruled out some other alternatives to inflation that people had thought of before, like so-called cosmic strings. This was another way you could get fluctuations that could lead to galaxies and so on. Cosmic strings you don't hear about anymore because they just aren't a real part of 
our standard cosmology because the microwave background data ruled them out. I want to uh, quickly say that you are not referring to strings as in string theory. It's totally different. Totally different idea. Yeah. Um, but so so there was there was nice evidence for inflation, but it wasn't what people would call the smoking gun. There were other theories that people had that they had come up with to, as sort of alternatives to inflation. There was the so-called cyclic model or the ectorotic model. Um, there were other you know less well developed ideas around. So. Although inflation had looked really good and its predictions had more or less come true, it wasn't a slam-dunk case. And moreover, the, the data that we had, while consistent with inflation, didn't tell us that much about exactly how inflation happened. Mm. There were a lot of different models of inflation uh, that could be consistent with the data. And, and part of the 30-year history of an inflation theory was that you know, Alan Guth came up with the inflaton that was just a, you know, a made-up substance that did this particular thing. It wasn't connected with any other real theory of physics. And because of that, there's a, there was, has been lots of room to just sort of make up all kinds of different versions of inflation. Right. And in fact, Guth's original version didn't work at all. So, so Linde and, and independently uh, Andy Albrecht and Paul Steinhardt uh, came up with a theory that did sort of work, a different version of inflaton. And since then, there have been literally hundreds of different versions of inflation theory. They all give slightly different predictions, but most of them were consistent with the data uh, that existed from these microwave background satellites. So it confirmed inflation, but it didn't really allow us to learn much about inflation, nor to, to really confirm that it was true versus some of its rivals that were out there. So, so no way to tell who is really doing really good physics, and who was a uh, sham? <laughs> I wouldn't say a sham, <laughs> but uh, wrong is, is a word that we have to be comfortable with as physicists <laughs> because nature, you know, nature is, is a particular way, and we can come up with lots of different theories, and most of them won't be right. Um, and there's no shame in that, uh, but, you know, we want to find out which one is the right one. I, I was just, you know, being a typical media guy and <laughs> trying to dramatize it. But uh, obviously a lot of contending theories, none of which could be completely shot down, or very few of which could be shot down based on the evidence we had up until now. That's right. Well, let's talk about the evidence that we have just gotten from this gadget called BICEP-2. That stands for Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization. It's a kind of microwave telescope, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's located at the South Pole. It's trying to detect what's called polarization, and that's why they put it at the South Pole, right? Because pole polarization? It's exact, that's the whole scientific case right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're joking, we're joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> so take us to the next stage. What, what is this polarization, and why is it important to understanding inflation? Okay, well, first maybe I should say one more thing about a, a prediction of inflation, which is that, so we talked about, the fact that the inflaton field that's driving inflation has to have these fluctuations in it due to quantum mechanics. Right. But there's another field sitting around during inflation besides the inflaton um, that has to be there, and that's the gravitational field. And you can ask, well, what about the gravitational field? Shouldn't it also respond to quantum mechanics? Shouldn't it you know, have the same sort of quantum fluctuations in it? That's been a big question. You know, how does quantum mechanics get along with gravity? 
But people have long assumed that even if we don't know the details of how quantum gravity works, that quantum mechanics should apply still to the gravitational field. And if it does, then during this early inflation period, not only the inflaton field, but also the gravitational field should get fluctuations imprinted in it. So there are not just one set of fluctuations, but two. And, and uh, in the field, we call this the, the scalar fluctuations. That's the ones in the inflaton field. And the tensor fluctuations, those are the ones in gravity. And another way of thinking of them is, is as gravitational waves. These are just fluctuations in space-time itself that exist. Just to maybe clear a little something up, people who listen to this show regularly or who follow physics probably already know that reconciling gravity theory, that is general relativity a la Einstein, and quantum mechanics has been a huge sore point for physicists who want to come up with a completely consistent, unified picture of nature. And you're saying that despite that problem, despite the fact that at very small scales the equations of gravity seem to go kablooey, we still believe there is a gravitational field down there and that it must be subject to quantum fluctuations. So we're not talking about unifying these two things at this point, but we do know that one thing does affect the other. Quantum fluctuations should affect the gravitational field. We think so, and, and, but, but I, ha I would say that this has been a little bit open to argument up until recently because, wow. you know, we don't really know how quantum gravity works exactly, and you could make a case, perhaps, that the gravitational field isn't quantized. You know, quantum, gra quantum mechanics doesn't apply to it in the same way it applies uh -huh. to other fields. Uh -huh. so, so part of this prediction of gravity waves from inflation was the assumption that quantum mechanics does apply to the gravitational field, uh -huh. an assumption which had never really been tested before. Wow. Okay. And, and by the way, gravity waves, these ripples in space-time, were something that are a natural uh, conclusion based on Einstein's theory of general relativity. Uh, you change something gravitationally in one area of space-time, and it's going to send ripples out at the speed of light, just like any other form of, say, radiation propagating, right? That's right. And, and these gravity waves, pretty much everyone believes that they exist. Um, but we've never directly detected them. We've only seen them indirectly from their effects on, uh, for example, pulsars. Pulsars spin down because they give away gravitational waves, and that removes energy from the pulsar. That's been detected. But we've never actually seen, despite a lot of effort that's going on, gravity waves directly in, in you know, their propagation through the universe. All righty. So let's talk about this BICEP-2 telescope and its relationship to this idea of gravity waves, uh, gravity waves coming from very early quantum fluctuations, early in the history of the universe. Great. Yeah, I think we have all the pieces in place now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so, so the microwave background has not just a temperature associated with it, but the light that comes to us also has what's called a polarization. So if you imagine a wave, uh, a wave can kind of have a direction to it, the, the direction it's waving in. Yeah, and we don't mean the direction in which it's propagating. We mean the direction in which the waves are moving up and down. Right. So they could move, say, you know, it could be propagating forward, and then the, the sort of wave itself is going up and down, or it could be going left and right. And the so there, those are two so, sort of different ways in which the wave could be... Waving. Waving. And those are called, you know, two different polarization modes of... Uh, an electromagnetic wave of light. 
So the microwave background radiation, like all other light, has this information about how the light is polarized. And what this experiment was designed to do, this experiment at the South Pole and, and others like it, is to detect not just the temperature variations in the microwave background, but the pattern of polarization in that light. Now, the reason they designed this experiment to do this is that the different theories of the early universe and different theories of inflation and so on for how these fluctuations could have been formed give different predictions for what this polarization would look like. And in particular, the crucial thing is that the scalar perturbations, that is the perturbations from the fluctuations in the inflaton field and that give most of the temperature variations across the sky and grow into galaxies and all that stuff, they have a very particular polarization signature. It's called an E-type polarization. You don't, it doesn't matter what exactly that means, but it's a particular signature in polarization. Right. Now, gravity waves, if they existed in, you know, coming from this early epoch, would imprint on this microwave background a different pattern of polarization that's called B-type polarization. They're distinguishable from each other. You can see if you have the polarization pattern, which type looks like E, looks, which type looks like B. The B-type, you can, if you looked at a picture of this, you would see that the B-type kind of has circulation around different points. It kind of looks like it has a, a, a kind of whirliness to it, whereas the E-type doesn't have that. Okay. Um, so it, it's hard to convey over the radio, but no, that's if you okay. saw pictures of them, you could... You could yeah, we can just simplify and say there's a certain type of polarization you might expect to see if indeed gravity waves behave the way the inflationary models predicted. That's correct. All right. Now, so various experiments have been set up to try to look for, measure the polarization and look for this particular type of B-mode polarization associated with gravity waves because it's an important thing to measure. So those have been going on for a while. And the announcement on Monday was that this BICEP instrument had detected polarization of the microwave background. Other people had done that. But in particular, they had detected the B-mode polarization, and they had detected it in a way that was totally consistent with these gravitational waves from super-early inflation. They found a signal that was actually surprisingly strong for these B-modes, and that had all kinds of interesting implications, which is why there's been such a big deal about it. Well, first of all, it's not the first indication of gravity waves. There were others, as you say, uh, for instance, um, signals from pulsars, right, pulsating stars. Uh, That's right. So it's not the first indication of gravity waves, and it's not a direct detection of gravity waves right. either, but it's another right. totally different manifestation of gravity waves. So that by itself is, is, is news. That's news. A second piece of news is that gravity is quantized. Um, that's something that we didn't really know. We suspected, but we didn't really know before. So in some sense, we're seeing quantum mechanics acting on gravity in this result. That's big, right? That's big. That's big. Wow. Um, a third thing is that this is a process that inflation predicted in a particular form, and the rival theories to inflation did not predict. For example, the, the cyclic equirotic model just flat out says there will not be these gravitational waves in, that are detectable in the microwave background radiation. And, and that's a model of the universe that does not include inflation and that has the universe 
alternately expanding and then contracting, sort of bouncing back and forth and, and yes, so over, over billions of years? Mm-hmm. Um, so if this result holds up, this BICEP2 result, that theory is just ruled out. It's gone. Wow. So in addition to people popping champagne you know, and celebrating, there are probably some who were crying into their pillow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that might be. <laughs> that might be. They'll come up with other great ideas, but but that that one just hasn't panned out for them. Wow. Well, you pointed out that there are many inflationary models. How much does this narrow down uh, the range of um, of plausible models? Yeah, this, this dramatically changes. I would say the the sort of landscape of inflationary models. So, inflation has had. I would say the two dominant things that people have thought about are what people call large field models and small field models. And and what that really means is um, the inflation field itself, how much does it change during the course of inflation? And also what sort of energy scale does inflation happen at? So the large field models tend to have inflation happening at a super high energy scale, the energy scale that's called the, the grand unified scale, and is about a trillion times higher than the energy scale at the Large Hadron Collider. So this is just a few orders of magnitude, about a factor of a 1,000, lower than the Planck energy scale, which is the highest energy scale there is uh, in, in known physics. So this is super high energy. Those are the large field models. There have also been small field models, which happen at various different lower energies. Now, the really great thing about this gravity wave as an observable, this, this uh, possible detection of gravity waves, is that it tells you directly the energy scale at which inflation happened. And it tells you that it happened at that super high energy scale, the 10 to the 16 GeV, the gut scale, a trillion times higher than the LHC. So we know now the energy scale at which inflation happened, if this holds up. We know, for example, how, you know, when there was the tiny fraction of a second, the trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, now we know that number. So it's not, you know, a, a billionth of a billionth of a billionth or just some tiny small number. We know the actual energy scale and hence how long it took for the universe to double in size each time during inflation. So it really is categorically new information that puts much more evidence for inflation in general and cuts out a huge range of possible inflationary models and lets us really focus down on a much smaller part of the, the sort of space of theories. So it's a message from the really remote past. We have the cosmic microwave background radiation, which again is a snapshot of the universe 300,000 or so years after the Big Bang. But this takes us all the way back to, I've heard it said, 10 to the minus 35th of a second after the Big Bang. Yeah, and, and I would I would actually say that this is we're talking about before the Big Bang at this point <laughs> because Whoa. because you got to explain that. Yeah, uh, we don't know how long this inflationary period, if it happened, went on for. It was a very different phase of the universe, and inflation ended when the the energy of this inflaton field turned into radiation. So that created kind of the big fireball. It created the the you know the bang part of the big bang so when i think when we talk about the big bang you know in the big bang theory what what that theory is really talking about is kind of the fireball and the expansion that happened out of it and all of that 13.8 billion years of cosmic history 
since that fireball was created. Oh, you mean when inflation ended? When inflation ended. Okay. But once you have inflation, um, you don't necessarily know how long before the fireball inflation happened, or even whether inflation had anything before it at all. I mean, inflation could have gone just on forever and then created this fireball, in which case there wasn't any Big Bang beginning of the universe. There was just inflation, and then there was the Big Bang fireball. So, so in that sense, I think it's important to distinguish between the Big Bang model, the thing that we really believe is true over the past 13.8 billion years, the hot, expanding universe, and the Big Bang beginning of the universe, which right. we don't really know anything about even now um, and may not have existed. Yes. You, you, in this other interview I mentioned um, earlier in this conversation uh, back in 2011, you disabused me of the notion of thinking of the Big Bang as the beginning of everything, that in fact we don't have any idea that you know, conceivably an eternity existed before what we call the Big Bang, that inflation might have been going on forever, that it might still be going on, and we might just be sitting in this little island of calm in an otherwise um, rapidly inflating giant universe that, that exists way beyond our cosmic horizon. That's right. And, and I would say that, as you correctly picked up, it drives me nuts when I see phrases in the popular literature or the scientific ones that say, you know, 100,000 years after the Big Bang, and or things referring to inflation as 10 to the minus 35 after the Big Bang, because they presume that there was this beginning of time. But we, we really just don't know that. And I think one of the things that this result tells us is that we're in a regime of inflationary theory where it's probably more likely than not that inflation went on for an unspeakably long period of time <laughs> before it ended in the fireball. Right. So when we talk about the universe, again, going from roughly a billionth of the size of a proton to the size of roughly a grapefruit during the inflationary period, we're talking about that part of the universe that we can theoretically observe, that is out to our cosmic horizon, our, our patch of the universe. We are not talking about the universe writ large, uh, which may be infinite, which may be infinitely old. Uh, right. Which and may still be inflating out there, which may have inflated in some way forever, and just little bubbles of stasis occur, uh, of which our our observable universe might be just one. And and that sounds totally you know speculative and and crazy, and and I thought so too when I first learned about it. But the important thing to emphasize, I think, is that the theory of inflation, which was devised you know by Alan Goose for these problems and had the side effects, and and has been confirmed in various ways, and now perhaps quite spectacularly, that these, you know, extra universes and long times and stuff aren't extra things that are tacked onto that theory because we think they're cool. <laughs> there are implications of the theory that, it, you know, when you work out the mathematics of what this theory predicts, yes, it gets our observable universe right. It also predicts all this other stuff. And you can't, I think, just pretend that that other stuff or wish away that other stuff when you accept the good stuff that it gives you, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever, whether the side effects you like them or not, they come along for the ride. And so I think this evidence for inflation and particularly the evidence for this very high energy inflation is, I think, pointing in that direction that, that the universe has this really much vaster and sort of deeper history than the, the Big Bang cosmology that we've seen drawn on the piece of paper.
um, for these these many years. Wow. So while most of the reports or all the reports that I've seen are talking about the significance of this being that it helps confirm the inflationary model in the classic Big Bang picture, that there's this one universe that we know, and that's all we need to know about, that inflated a tiny fraction of a second after the very beginning. In fact, you're saying that this may actually lend weight to the idea of eternal inflation, um, inflation that is still going on beyond our horizon, that may have gone on forever. We just may be one little bubble, one little branch of a giant, giant, giant universe. Or we might even be one little part of a universe that itself sits among many other universes because inflation can cause bubbles to break off and become separate universes under some theories. That, that's all correct. And, and it's important to emphasize also that, that if you ask Alan Guth or Andre Linde what they think the overall structure of the universe looks like, they will tell you that they're almost sure that it is of this type, the multiverse, the huge expanse of bubbles and inflation going on forever and perhaps indefinitely into the past. So these are the guys that invented inflation and that you know speculated wildly about it 30 years ago and have those speculations have now come true. And, and what they and I think others of us are, are now saying is that the preponderance of evidence feels like it's pointing toward this very much bigger picture of reality than than the, the Big Bang universe that we sort of have gotten somewhat comfortable with over the last 20 or 30 years. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing because um, in learning about the multiverse theory, I'd often heard that, well, it may be true, it may not, but there's no way to ever even know. In fact, you're saying that this latest finding, again from this telescope called BICEP2 at the South Pole that found certain evidence in the cosmic microwave background, this finding might actually lend support to the multiverse idea. A little bit, I think. I think it, it, you know, it's not super strong support in that um, you can still devise, if you work at it, models of inflation that are consistent with this data but don't give you a multiverse. But you have to work at it. So, so you, you know, the, the models that you would just naturally write down and get this data right, you know, which is a much smaller class of models than we had before, they will generically predict this eternal inflation behavior. So it's not smoking gun evidence of the multiverse. I think that is theoretically possible to find. Um, but it's suggestive. It certainly isn't. It, it could have been different. It could have been that we could have measured something about inflation that really suggested that it happened at much lower energy scales and a very different region of theory space that it would have been much harder to say that eternal inflation was likely. This is exactly the sort of model that Andre Linde thinks about all the time in the context of eternal inflation, or Alan Gu thinks about all the time, and other people do. It's kind of part of the, that, that whole package of ideas generally deals with models that are pretty much just like this. You know, it's not direct evidence, but if you are thinking along those lines, it's another piece that feels just right. Could the results of this um, experiment and these observations, could they have dealt a serious blow to the multiverse idea? So the, the more likely result that people were expecting from this experiment was that they just wouldn't detect anything, right. that they would put an upper limit on this gravitational wave contribution, and that as the years kind of ground on, those upper limits would get tighter and tighter and tighter, and they would kind of rule out little regions of theory space and make certain models that people liked less plausible. 
but it would be kind of a slow grinding process of of kind of okay, well we've refined things a little bit, we put another decimal place on this, and so on. So that was the more likely scenario, I think, in most people's minds, honestly. So this was a spectacular positive result that could have easily just been a boring negative one. Mm-hmm. So it's really great news that it was detected. You know, it's great news personally because these sorts of inflation models are ones that I think about all the time. It tells me that they're not all ruled out. I, ha- I don't have a bunch of papers I have to throw in the trash <laughs> can. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you always have to be prepared to throw lots of papers in the trash can, but it feels good when you don't have to. I think it's really good for the scientific community, too, because one of the worries has been, both in particle physics and in cosmology, that we're coming to the road where our theories have been so successful that we're running out of things to test, that, you know, the the standard Big Bang model just works, the standard model of particle physics works, and to find something that doesn't fit into those or that gives us more clues as to what's really happening at higher energies or smaller scales and so on, is just getting so expensive and impossible that, yeah. that we're going to be stuck. And I think there was, a, there was a real fear starting to develop in the cosmological community that we were starting to get there, that the latest satellite, the Planck satellite, would do a beautiful job of measuring everything and would put a few more decimal places on things but wouldn't really tell us anything exciting and new. And this, I think, is a real huge crack in, in that wall against our... our further progress. This tells us that we can keep pushing on this. We can do all kinds of experiments, both from satellites potentially or from the ground, which aren't that expensive, and get lots more information about this polarization and get lots more information about inflation. It's a a whole new window into a regime of physics and energies and times that we had sort of optimistically hoped we might get, but, but I think we had feared that we wouldn't. Um, and, and it tells us that there's a lot of exciting things to do in cosmology and in high-energy physics in the years to come, rather than a sort of long period of stagnation and frustration. And it makes it easier to write grant proposals. <laughs> the NSF will be deluged with uh, new grant proposals very soon, I think. And, and other things that have been put on the back burner will be revived. There are thoughts of having a satellite experiment to measure the polarization. This is certainly strong impetus to do something like that, or just more of these experiments at the South Pole. It's actually a great place to do this sort of work, as, as we've seen. But wherever it is, it's, it's now going to happen because these are exciting results that, that need to be confirmed. That's something that we really should emphasize here is that this is one group, a few experiments from that one group. They've done a careful job, and people who have looked at it say, you know, it looks good, but we really need to see data from a totally different collaboration, a totally different instrument that, that shows confirmation of this before we should really run with it and get excited. So, well, we can get excited, but, <laughs> but before we should really, really believe it um, and, and act on it, you know, we should see confirmation. Well, caveats aside, how did you get the news of the results and how did you feel when you heard them? Well, rumors about this started to fly around. From, at least I became aware of them kind of late last week. Um, and there were various emails flying around that there was going to be a discovery and that there would be a press conference on Monday. So kind of late last week, I, I sort of got wind of it through the rumor mill. Um, you know, I'm not as excited probably as Andre Linde was to hear the news <laughs> <laughs> or Alan Guth, um, but it's pretty exciting. It's one of those events that really changes the course of research 
and, and since I'm a researcher in this field, is, is going to influence the course of how things go for my career um, in a significant way and, and in a positive way and an exciting way. So, so I was pretty happy. Um, we, <laughs> uh, we did have some champagne on, on Sunday, my wife and I, and, and she was like, you're celebrating what exactly? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully she'll listen to the show and then she'll know. Hopefully so. <laughs> well, uh, it may be premature, but I'm just going to say congratulations. And uh, thank you so much, Anthony. It's always a pleasure talking to you. It's been my pleasure, too. Anthony Aguirre, Associate Professor of Physics at UC Santa Cruz and One Happy Cosmologist. And by the way, you can find our previous interviews with Anthony, one in which we went into uh, a great deal more detail about inflation theory, the idea of eternal inflation and the multiverse, and uh, another, actually, uh, two-part series on Einstein's theory of general relativity, which underlies so many of these concepts. You can find those on our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. So long until then. <laughs>